The sermon you are about to hear was given at Pillar Bible Fellowship in Hood River, Oregon. Pillar Bible Fellowship exists to glorify God by knowing Christ more fully and making Christ more fully known. Email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org. You can find more information about Pillar Bible Fellowship online at www.pillarhoodriver.org. Please enjoy the podcast. Let's pray once more. Heavenly Father, what a, a fitting song to come to your time in the Word, our time in your Word. Lord, we need you, and you reveal yourself so so wonderfully, so perfectly, so carefully in your written word, in your special revelation. So God, now as we begin this new book, the, the beginning of our Bible, may it be useful for us to know more about you, who you are, and your intention for how you designed this world to be, and for it to be imprinted upon us so that we would, we would see your good design and that we would be careful not to distort it or go along with those who would want to distort what you have laid across on creation. So, Lord, bring us to the truth. Bring us to your word. Use this time together in, a, in an effort to grow us in faith, to grow us in Christ-likeness as we subject ourselves to the truth of your word together. Amen. Please have a seat. We are going to be in this new book of the Bible, as was our scripture reading today. Just a few weeks ago, Ben preached through Psalm 19 as we were wrapping up our series in the Psalms. And there we look together at a tremendous blessing of God's special revelation. God's special revelation is his written word. And in, psalm, in that psalm, we read that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Today, we start as a church body into this new book of the Bible, where we will receive more of the Lord's testimony. And it's going to have that effect of what that psalm promised, of making wise the simple. So today we begin in the beginning of the book of the Bible, of of the Bible itself, in Genesis. In particular, today we're going to be focused on the first seven days of God's creation. We're going to be looking at the creation account, as was our scripture reading. And this in and of itself is going to be hugely impactful on how we understand where it is we live and and how we interact with God's creation. And we're going to see that God is a God of order and that he orders his creation. However, before we can jump into this message, the one that's right before us, it's important for us to take some time together today to see what is in front of us in this whole book. So I'm going to do a a quick introduction to the book of Genesis itself as we're getting into it. And one of the things we find in the the whole story of Scripture is there's 
It's characterized by what we call the creation, the fall, the redemption, and the consummation. Creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's one way to say the, the whole story of the Bible is, is being laid out in a certain manner. And we see elements of that as we move through the Bible. And as we move through the Bible, that picture becomes clearer and clearer as God gives us more of the details in his special revelation. In the book of Genesis, we have the creation account. And we also have the fall. So like just right out the gate, we get some of what this, this plan is, creation and fall, happening in just the first three chapters of the Bible. And then the subsequent devastation that comes about after the fall. And we see that God doesn't abandon us. He doesn't abandon us. As his creatures, we fall, we sin, we depart from what God had intended for us, and yet he's got a plan to redeem us, to bring us close to himself, and not to leave us in that fallen state. And even as we move through to the end of the book of Genesis, we see that this plan is developing. God has laid it out, and it begins to develop. And we'll see that as we work through. But even when we get to the end of Genesis, it's not fully clear how it's going to happen. So we know that the consummation is going to occur, but we don't have all of the details we might like. The other thing we want to know about when we're studying God's word is to recognize that God used human agents. He used human authors. And in this case, he used Moses. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. And we have to keep that in mind because as we study scripture, it's not one of our modern day um, professors, if you will, or someone that's right next to us that wrote God's word. It's someone in ancient times. So in this case, it was Moses. And how long ago did Moses live? What was the language of, of Moses? And how did he write? What language did he write in? And what was the worldview of the time, the scientific outlook of of creation, because that all plays a factor in how God used him to then write the story about creation that we'll be looking at here. And I don't ask those questions to, to try to make it more difficult for us to understand God's word, but we have to be aware that those are factors, and we have to keep them in mind as we're studying scripture, because otherwise what we do is we tend to inject into scripture our language, we tend to inject our common knowledge of, of the way things are now, and we, and we can get caught up in, in um, trying to say, well, it's not very clear what's being said here. Uh, it's kind of murky, but that's because we're injecting into the scriptures more than what the scriptures are revealing for themselves. So it's just something to be aware of. So like I said, helpful to us as we start into this account is the creation account. So I'm just going like, to just kind of breeze through Genesis quickly. So we have the, the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. And then we have the fall in chapter 3. And then as, as all of this is transpiring, as God is revealing it to us, we're left in, in this wonder and awe that God would do this amazing thing and then we'd rebel against him so quickly. And all of this is going to come out as we work through Genesis in the coming months. But one of the things we, we learn is that we can trust God. 
We can trust God. We can't trust ourselves very well. We prove that at the fall, that we tend to go askew quickly. But we can trust God and what he has in his word for us. And this helps explain, when we look at the fall, why there is suffering in the world, why there's hurt, why there's pain, why there's guilt. All these things that tend to weigh us down can be explained as we take a look at the fall in Genesis chapter 3, and then the rebellion that issues forth after that. And then as we move through Genesis chapter 3, and then all the way through chapter 11, we get kind of this, this broad expanse of what's going on in, in all of ancient history. We have uh, the fallout, really, of sinful man trying to rule over the earth in a way that God didn't intend him to. And so there's, again, this, this spiraling out of control in chapters 3 through 11 in our Bible. But we get these hints along the way that God isn't going to leave us to our own devices, that he is going to do something to bring about redemption. We get that first major hint in Genesis 3.15. When the Lord is speaking to Satan or to the serpent after Adam and Eve sinned, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Do we get this this major hint right there in Genesis 3.15 that God is going to do something in the future to bring about a change to the way things are at that time? That he's going to bring about redemption. And we get another big indication of that during the flood. So we we know that humanity becomes corrupted to the point where God says, I'm going to wipe man off the face of the earth. I'm going to destroy what I've made with the flood. But then he preserves Noah and his family. What he's saying is, I'm going to save a remnant for myself. I have a chosen people, and I'm going to do something through them, which is another hint that God is going to bring out a plan for redemption. And then there's, there's covenants that are at play in the Bible too. And the, the Noahic covenant, which we'll look at when we get to chapter 8 and chapter 9, is helpful. But then once again, just like Adam and Eve basically became naked and ashamed, Noah also ends up naked and ashamed. And this, this is confusing. This is confusing as we look at it. And the, and the people that are there at the time want to connect to God and they go about this, this crazy thing near the end of chapter 11 where there's the Tower of Babel and they're trying to reach God on their own terms. And God said, that's not how it works. I have a plan and it's not this. And so then he scatters the nations. He confuses the language. Once chapter 11 concludes, so that's like that broad base, like the ancient peoples in time, we get very much more down narrow and necked down to what God's going to do through one man and one family. So he calls Abram, who later becomes Abraham, and he says, I'm going to do something through this man who was obedient to me, who listened to my voice, call him out of his land, and then I'm going to do something with his family line. And then more promises are made. We have uh, promises which are all, and then covenants that are made In chapter 15, we get a very clear look at one of those statements, and then chapter 17 of Genesis. And then the rest of the book explores how God carries those promises through 
and preserves this family line. And what I trust as we study through Genesis is that we all are going to be impacted by God's faithfulness despite the people's lack of faithfulness. Because what we're going to see over and over again is people doing things that are just somewhat crazy, uh, just out there. And yet they're, his, they're God's chosen people. And so God continues to preserve them and bring them along and carry out his plan of redemption through this family line. And God is glorified in the middle of this mess that we see taking place in Abraham's family. And let's face it, church, we too can be an unsavory lot. We can be individually, not all that uh, good to be around at times, and then collectively we too can um, present what God wouldn't, he wouldn't want us to be presenting, and yet we do. But this shouldn't crush us, it should give us hope that God works in the face of such, such a mess to continue to move forward his plan. Much like what Ben was praying in the pastoral prayer uh, from Matthew 16. God preserves and works in his way. He will never fail. And we have this hope because of Jesus Christ. As we it, we'll get there, Genesis helps lay the foundation for how we get to Christ through the family line of, of Abraham. And that is the full plan of redemption, is through Christ. And we'll preach the gospel as we're preaching Genesis. Even though Jesus isn't named there, we know from the study of Scripture that Jesus is the fulfillment of his plan of redemption, even as it's begun in Genesis. So there, quickly, is, a, is before us just this massive book. It's 50 chapters, 50 chapters in the book of Genesis, and it's a, it's a large spread. And what we're intending to do as the elders, as we're moving through the book of Genesis, is not to preach every verse in this book, okay? So what that means is as a congregation, we need to be reading the text, rereading the text, and ready to jump into conversations because there are going to be certain segments that are going to be uh, read from the front, but not necessarily preached through verse by verse, but that doesn't mean that that won't bring up questions. So be engaged in the reading and the rereading of the text. Bring those conversation pieces, those questions, and we'll learn together as we uh, work through the book of Genesis. Throughout what we see, though, God is active. He's not a passive God. He's an active God. He's a God who wants order, and he cares for his creation. He cares for sinners, which is amazing to think about. Like, we can, we can thumb our nose at God, and yet he says, I still care for you. I still want to draw you near to me. And this is all laid out as part of God's plan. It's not hard for us to, to look out around us and say, well, if God's a God of order, why is there so much disorder in the world right now? And I, I think if, if we said let's take a look at what's going on around us, we'd say it seems like there's more disorder than order. So what's happening here? Well, we are seeming to be accelerating to more disorder. But that brings us back to where we are today, starting in the book of Genesis to say, well, who is this God and what has he created? Well, he is a God of order. He brings order to chaos. 
And the picture we have in this first portion of the book that we're going to be looking at is that the author of all of life established order. He established order in the midst of chaos. And church, he can bring order to our chaos too. As we work through our preaching section today, I'm going to look at in the beginning, verses 1 through 25, in the beginning, and then made in God's image, which is verses 26 and through 31, made in God's image. And then lastly, seven days of creation, we'll look at chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Let's begin with verse 1. We read in God's word, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is how the Bible begins. Think about that. This is how God chooses to begin this book of special revelation about himself. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. And as God begins to tell the story of all things, he chooses to begin with a creation account. This is important to God. He, he, wants, he wants his people to know him as the God who is capable, who did create all things. And remember, this is Moses who's writing this, that God is inspiring Moses to write this. God somehow tells Moses this story, and Moses is, is writing it. And it's for these Hebrew people that were in slavery. They were in slavery in Egypt. While they were in Egypt, they would have been exposed to a creation account. Every ancient people group had a creation account. God wants to make sure they know the truth about how the world came to be and where their place is in it and how they play a role in his redemption story. Because I don't know how much they would have been thinking about, oh yeah, we're descendants of Abraham. There were a lot of promises made to him and, and we're that people group. God starts here first and then goes through to tell the rest of that story. So let me ask this. They've been exposed, they were exposed to some kind of a creation account. How about us? Have we ever been exposed to an alternative creation account before? Yeah, every people group has a creation account. It's been so since ancient times. It continues to today. And when God starts his word, his special revelation, he begins with a creation account. It's important to him that we understand how everything began. So God has given us this verse as a major help. And verse 1 sits as a prelude, if you will, as a, as a beginning or an overarching statement to the rest of the creation account and how it unfolds. It's foundational. It's a foundational aspect of our understanding of what God is claiming in this first sentence. What he is saying in the beginning, God, is that he alone is sovereign. In the beginning, God. He's saying, I alone am sovereign, and I have created. And he says, I've basically created everything. He uses terms that would have encapsulated everything, heavens and the earth. And this is where we might say, well, th but there's more. I have the Hubble, uh, Hubble um, telescope, or I have, 
I have a, a Mars rover. I, I can see more than the heavens and the earth. But at the time, this would have encompassed all that the people would have known, the heavens and the earth. It's a way to describe everything. The Lord made everything. It's a very unambiguous statement where God is clearly claiming to be the creator God. And if we find one place in Christianity that gets attacked over and over again, it tends to be this part of our Christianity. Well, this is an easy one. It seems like people, for, for people to attack. It's like, you really believe God created the earth? I mean, how many, people, how many of us have heard a statement similar to that in our, in our lifetime? You really believe that God created everything and that he did it by the power of his word? How could you, how could you be so ignorant? It's what God's word says. So we don't want to be ignorant, but we do want to see what God's word really says. And we want to listen to him. Let me encourage you as listeners that as, as difficult as it might be to understand how God created the word or the world and everything in it, I just want to remind you that God is, is supremely trustworthy. God is supremely trustworthy. And he gives us his word so that we can know him and know more about him, and that we can trust him. His word never fails. It never will fail. So if he starts out the Bible saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, we can trust that. We can trust that. Now, the skeptics, if they're intellectually honest, can't give an answer for how the beginning came about. They might have a, a, um, a creation narrative, but if you drill down all the way to the very beginning, they can't give a, an intellectually honest answer to how everything started. God claims to have been there. He says, in the beginning, God, I was there, I did it, and I'm going to tell you about how I did it. And we can trust God and his word. He begins his special revelation this way. He was there. But what is it that was there? In verse 2, now we get some more of the specifics. Verse 2, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So what I would like to do is look at these verses in a manner that is a little bit slower than what you would do just reading through, okay? We're going to slow down and say, well, what do we see in God's word? What do we see here? What do you see in verse 2? We see the earth. We see earth. We see darkness. We see the deep, some primordial ocean seems to be present there. These are things we see, and then we see that God is present. God is present, and he's hovering there. We also have a description. So we see a description of what all this looks like, and it's in the Hebrew, tohu vavohu, chaos and disorder. It's, it's void and empty. That's what we see. That's what's there in verse 2. And I, I bring this up because... What we're going to notice as we're going through the creation account is that even though there was chaos and disorder, the God that we serve, the God that we know, he brings order to that disorder. 
He's a God of order, and he, he orders everything according to the wisdom of his counsel. And this is what we see unmistakably in the rest of the creation account. God was present. He claims sovereignty over, or over creation, and he puts all things in order. The world is not just left to do its own thing, to just spiral around and figure it out on itself. God is there, and he orders it. You might be saying, well, wait a minute. Where, where did this stuff come from? If in verse 2 it says there's earth and there's water, where did this stuff come from? Have you ever had that thought before when you've looked at verse 2? Where did this stuff come from? Let me just say that this is, this is puzzling. We don't have in Scripture an account of where this stuff came from in verse 2. I don't bring that up to try to question that God created it, because I believe that God created ex nihilo, that he created out of nothing. He created everything that we know of out of nothing. But I don't get that from verse 2, and I don't get that from the rest of the creation account that we find in Genesis 1. I have to go to some clearer text in the Bible to be able to make that claim. If you're wondering what some of those might be, uh, John chapter 1, I know many have, have um, memorized this section of scripture, but in John 1 verse 3 is one of these that helps me understand that God created everything and he did so out of nothing. So in John 1 3, we read, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. That's a very clear statement in Scripture. We don't have that clear of a statement in Genesis 1, but there are clearer statements in Scripture that are helpful for us to go back to saying, yes, I can believe that God created everything. Similar to that is Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, chapter 3, the famous chapter about faith, there's a statement about creation there. In Hebrews 11, verse 3, it says, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. The universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen, what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Again, another very clear statement in scripture that helps me stand and say, yes, I believe God created everything out of nothing, ex nihilo. But I don't get that from Genesis 1. I have to go to the clearer text to help me understand what we're seeing in Genesis chapter 1. So now I'm going to speed through as much as I can, verses 3 through 10, give you a summary of, of where God is setting some boundaries in his creation, in his creation order. Because as God brings order to disorder, he does so with boundaries. God goes into a pattern here of the creation account. He starts out by creating light. God creates light. In verse 2, all that was there was darkness. In verse 3, God creates light. Previously, like I said, darkness. But then he brings forth light, and what he does is he separates the light from the darkness. He categorizes them and says, we're going to call the light day, and the darkness is going to be called night. 
We talked about this last night as a family, just, just rudimentary. Before you have a, a watch, how do you know what time it is? Well, there's either daytime or nighttime. So what I see here is that God is bringing order by giving us light and darkness, calling them day and night, and he's creating time. Time. Just think about that. God creates time as part of his order of creation at the very beginning. He's bringing order to disorder. He establishes time. And he does this all in a pattern of evening and morning. We're going to see that repeated. You heard it in the scripture reading. Evening and morning. Evening and morning. In the case of the first day. And the Hebrew word for day is yom. Yom. It's an easy word to remember maybe for some. Yom. I believe, we talked about this at community group on Thursday night, that yom is a 24-hour period of time. Some faithful Christians will find that there's a gap of time in the creation order. They'll say, after Genesis 1-1, there's some unknown expanse of time, and then the rest. Other faithful Christians might say, between each day, there is a gap of time, and then another sequence of events happen. But I don't want us to get so bogged down in trying to figure out that time aspect, but more, what is God actually showing us in his word? He doesn't show us the details of that time, per se, but what he does show us is that he's ordering his creation, that he's taking things from a state of disorder and he's putting them into order. There's no denying that from the text. God is a God of order. And what he's doing and putting order is he's making it as a hospitable place for life, to support life, to continue his creative work. That's what he's doing as he describes next of separating the expanse, separating it and putting the, separating basically the expanse, the waters from below and the waters from above. Again, using language that is understood from the ancient mindset, but from us, we're like, what does that really mean? Waters above, waters below. And we can, again, add back in, say, well, is he talking about the atmosphere? We don't have that detail exactly. All we know is that God separated the expanse, the waters from the waters. And then he continues this division, the water from dry land. Again, he's ordering creation and making it uniquely hospitable to support life. In verses 11 through 13, along with the separation of land and water, when he's done that, now he's provided a space for vegetation. Once there's dry land, he's like, okay, now there's, there's room for vegetation in my creation. And he brings forth vegetation. And this is going to be the building block, vegetation, for the, the sustainment of the rest of the living things that he puts on the earth, his plants. One of the things I, I really appreciate here as we're looking at the, the plant life is that he says that plants are able to re- reproduce after their kind, meaning it's repeatable process. They produce seeds and they bear fruit. And here we have to slow down for a minute and, and just ask this question of the text. Is, is God saying that when he created that he gave every bit of genetic capability for a plant to reproduce, and he packaged it up 
and he put it in the form of a seed, which is, which is transferable from one place to the next, and then it can reproduce what it came from? That's a question we have to ask of the text, and that's what the text is saying. That's amazing. God made this complex system with everything that is needed uh, right off the get-go. And he, he said, I can do that and I can condense it down to a seed and it can reproduce after its kind. I am not a math genius. In fact, I listened to Vanessa teaching the kids and I think I need to go to school again quite often. But I think there are some people that are, are pretty smart with mathematics and modeling. And if I could get someone and I could say, can you set up a model for me to give me all the variables and all the time I need in order to produce a living thing that would not only be a living thing, but that it would also grow up and then produce something that would have everything needed inside of it to reproduce again? How many variables and how much time would be required for that to be possible? I think just to get a living thing would be hard enough. But imagine for that living thing, to, for when it springs forth, to have what is needed contained within it to reproduce again. To me, that just says, I, I can't go along with the evolutionary game plan. God seems to have done something more significant by the power of his word than we can even fathom coming up with on our own. Here, succinctly, he's, he's ordering the plant kingdom in just a few lines of Hebrew. In verses 14 through 25, God continues in this order of his creation. The narrative purposefully unfolds and he places things in the sky. He says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to place orbs in the sky and they're going to mark seasons and time. And I was marveling at this just this last week and I found out now I need to call Craig when I see this next time. But there was a, a lunar eclipse one of the mornings this last week. And I looked out, and as the shadow of the earth is passing over the moon, I had two thoughts. First, that I'm covered by the blood of Christ. The moon is, is getting covered by the shadow, and I thought, I'm covered by the blood of Christ. And the second thought I had was, God has arranged things in such a way so precisely that the orbit of the planets can be forecasted and known. That's amazing to me. And every once in a while, they line up. I was sharing that with Caleb. God ordered his creation. God did that. It's a marvelous thing. And then just thinking about the moon for a little while longer, it's my understanding, and I'm sure some of you might be smarter on this than I am, that the moon has this other effect upon our planet, and that's, it helps keep the ocean alive by its gravitational pull. Somehow it, it causes there to be tides, which then it helps things to exchange in the ocean so it doesn't become stagnant. And I, I don't really know where ocean currents come from, but those play a role too. This is all part of God's design. It's not by accident. It didn't just happen. God designed it. He, he brought order to chaos. Again, promoting the livability of the planet, the livability of the waters. They're not all saline. They're not all just stagnant. 
They're capable of supporting life. And he did a very similar thing with the air. He made the air of such components that it's breathable and that it can, that it can sustain flight. So you need a certain, a certain ability of the air to be able to sustain flight. You can't just go fly. Try putting a bird in, up at uh, 20,000 feet and say, okay, bird, go, go fly. There wouldn't be enough air density there for the bird. So, but down lower, there is. And so God has designed the planet to support life. And then he goes on here in verse 22. I know we're, we're speeding through, but we have to with this amount of this much content. In verse 22, he says, And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. So there he's speaking specifically of these living creatures, of sea creatures that are in the sea and then birds. And he blesses them and says, multiply and fill the earth. And this sets forth another aspect of God's creative order, that he wants and desires his creatures to be involved in the filling of his earth. He wants his creatures to be involved in and to, I believe, enjoy the earth that he's created. Just, can you picture dolphins jumping? That looks like it'd be an enjoyable thing to do. Or, you, uh, or birds flying. I'm always amazed when I just take the time to watch birds fly for a while. God wants his creatures to enjoy his creation, to fill it. It's, it's the place that he's made and he wants it to be used. The land animals follow during day six. And we see that God has established this hierarchy in his creative order. It wouldn't make any sense to have brought the land animals in on day one. He brings them in on day six. After there's dry land for them to be on. And after there's, there's a food uh, bank, if you will. There's, there's things to eat. There's vegetation. And I was just reading a, a book with my kids this last week. So this character, Jack, I don't know if anyone's ever seen this kid's book before or one like it. So Jack, he, he's a pretty imaginative, imaginative kid. And he says, if I built a home or if I built a school, in this case, if I built a school, and I was looking through it, if Jack built his school, he'd have a, a science lab where they could make animals so in this picture of Jack's animals, you have this uh, rhinoceros head and a, like a chicken back end, okay? And you have a, a swan with a fish and a flying snake. So you have, you have some things that Jack has in mind. But when God created the, all of the land animals, he made them reproducible in their kind, he made them so that they could function. And some of the animals that God created are pretty funny looking when you, when you stop to look at them. But God made it so that they could have a place and that they could reproduce. In our imagination, we might come up with things, but it wouldn't last. We might put something together, but then it would fall apart. God is sovereign over his creation. God brings order to chaos. Something about this should speak to how he deals with our sin. Because when we have sin in our lives, it brings about chaos. It disorders our life. 
And we see throughout the storyline of Genesis, even here early in the creation account, that God wants to bring order to disorder. And that plan gets revealed as we go through Scripture all the way until we get to Jesus. Jesus who brings about salvation to us when we put our faith in him. And he says, I will cover you with my blood. I will bring your disorder back into order by my righteousness. We see this even early in the pages of Scripture. If we're carefully looking, we're saying, this is the God we serve. This is what he wants to do. He wants to bring about order to disorder. And this brings us up to our next section in the text, which is made in God's image. Taking a look then at man. Taking a look at those made in the image of God. Let's observe this marvelous section of, of the scripture In the latter half of day six, we see verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The term God that we're seeing throughout Genesis chapter 1 is Elohim in the Hebrew. And when you put an im on the end of a Hebrew word, that makes it plural normally. But in Hebrew, you also have this aspect of the im, so Elohim, as a respectful term. So like if you're trying to say this is an honorary title, you might also add im. So Elohim. God. And so our translators of our Bibles have, I think, done a very helpful thing for us where they've put a capital G, God, in, in this for Elohim, okay? But it can be confusing at times because we might look at that and, 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 and uh, look at some of our apps that are available to us or our original language and say, well, Elohim. And I know God is, is uh, made up of three persons, but he's one God, So is there something being said with Elohim trying to describe that? I don't think that's the case here. There's other more clear, again, statements in Scripture that that expound upon the Trinity, but not with Elohim. But what should jump out of the page from us, if we're being careful observers of the text, is here in verse 26. We have first-person plural Jump, should jump out of the page at us. When God in the council of the Godhead says, Let's, let us, first person plural, let us make man in our image. Our, that's also a first person plural. And our likeness, first person plural. So as we're reading through scripture, all of a sudden we come to this section, we should say, hey, wait, what's going on here? Our, thank you, Karis. I don't enunciate as well as I should. Uh, our. <laughs> God is drawing attention to his creative work. And he's saying, by the, the counsel of myself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I want to create an image bearer. I want to create an image bearer that is 
like us, like me. And so how does he do it? He makes them. He makes them. And he makes them to have dominion as vice regents over his creation. This is a tremendous responsibility that he gives to mankind. And we can trust that if God has given that to mankind, that he's also enabled humans through their giftings and through the way he's ordered them, through the intellect that he's given to carry out their responsibility in a meaningful way. Now, just thinking about the completeness of God, there is one God. He's complete in and of himself. Father God, Father God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But he images God in this way. So God created man, verse 27, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Church, as you look at your page of Scripture and you see verse 27, what you're going to notice is the margins should probably shrink down in most of your Bibles, and it's broken out as a section of poetry. Okay, this is a celebration. God is breaking out in celebration, and he's saying, Moses, draw attention to what I'm doing here. Put this in poetic language. And what God is doing in creating man is is he is making man, which the Hebrew word is Adam, he's making man in his image, his own image. And he does this by creating male and female. Male and female, he created them. God images himself in male and female. We can't let that just slide past us. That's how God designed his image bearers to be male and female, equal in worth and dignity before his sight. This is how he created us. And he blessed mankind. He blessed males and females. He blessed us and said, be fruitful and multiply, male and female. Come together, be fruitful and multiply. That's a command. And then also to fill the earth and subdue it to rule over and take dominion over every created thing. And I have no doubt that God was pleased with his creation because at the end of verse 31, we get this caption of, it was very good. His stamp of approval upon what he's done. And so often what happens, church, is now we we just stop. We think, okay, creation's done. That's the pinnacle of God's creation. He made Man, he made woman in his image and everything else. But there is another section here in the creation account that we need to cover. It's day seven, seven days of creation, not just six, seven. So what do we see in, in, verse, or in uh, chapter two, beginning in verse one, this last section that we're gonna look at together? In uh, verse two, picking up, it says that he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. 
This is the creation account where God has prescribed order to his creation. And we can't drop off day seven. This is part of God's ordering of his creation. It's deliberate. He, he put everything in its place because it has a function. And he's put day seven there for a reason too. It has a function. It's very deliberate. God is deliberate. And, and think about this. This is before the fall, okay? So this is before sin enters into the equation. This is what God has done. And what do you think God is doing on day seven after he's created everything? I believe he's enjoying his creation. In English, it says he rested, but it's the Hebrew word Shabbat. He ceased. He stopped. He stopped creating. And what do you do once you've stopped creating something? You enjoy it. You take advantage of the work that's been done, and you say, let's, let's do something with this. God has everything in his, in, his, in his creation there for a reason. Day seven is there for a reason as well. It's so that we can come together and rest along with God, saying God takes care of what God takes care of, and, and we can trust him. We don't have to be involved in ordering all of our own life. On, on day seven, we can say, Oh, God, God takes care of that. On day seven, we can recognize him as being fully capable of sustaining life, fully capable of ordering life, fully capable of receiving our worship. That's what day seven is, is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be acknowledging the greatness of God and for him to be able to enjoy interacting with his people. And we have made that day seven now as Christians our Sunday. It's no longer the Saturday. For us, we've made it Sunday because Jesus made this day special by conquering the grave and rising from the dead. It's an important thing to do. I, we bought the, the Schreiber's old trampoline from them, and it was a rainy evening. We took it back to the house, and the kids and I, we put it all together and what do you think we did once we got it all put together? After we created, if you will, or recreated this trampoline, did we just sit back and rest? No, we enjoyed it. The kids jumped on it in the rain because it's a trampoline. It's there to be jumped on. And I believe we need to keep that in mind when we're looking at day seven in the creation account. God made everything because he wanted to interact with his creation. He wanted to interact with the pinnacle of his creation. He wanted to interact with us as male and female. He wanted to receive worship on that day, on every day. As we draw our time in the Word to a close today, I'll say it again, that the author of life established order in the midst of chaos. He orders our chaos too. He provided us, his people, with this creation narrative. This is the one he gave us. We have it because it's foundational to our belief in God, to our understanding of how we approach life. And to show you how foundational it is to how we approach life, I want to ask a series of questions. And I want you to answer these questions in accordance with the scriptures that we've covered so far today. 
Who formed the world and all that's in it? Did the one who formed all things do so in an orderly manner or a disorderly manner? The way you answer these questions will have a direct impact on how much you are challenged by alternative creation narratives. Here's another section of of questions. What about how the things in the world are to be used? How are they to be used? Who has been granted dominion over the other created things, such as water, air, land, birds, fish, and animals? These are God's things, and how are we caring for God's stuff? Then, speaking of humans, what does it mean to be created in the image of God? This is a good question. How does that impact our view of the sanctity of human life? From conception all the way through to natural death, if God created us in his image, how does that impact our view of life? Or when does the image of God no longer warrant protection? Is another good question. When does it no longer warrant protection? And then a a big topic right now that's impacting all of us is the distinction between male and female. God put things in order. And he did so by creating us in his image as male and female. Did God make a mistake by drawing that distinction? Have we ascended to such a place that we can say something contrary to our maker? Or that we know better than him? So if we're thinking about the text that we've covered, and we ask those questions, it should take us into a certain direction of, what does God's word say to help us answer these questions? And how does that impact the way we live out our Christian faith? The truth of the matter is that we live in a sinful and a broken world. And these questions are difficult questions because sin has brought disorder into the very ordered creation that God has given to us. And although we're gathered here together as a Christian body who has trusted in large part the Lord for our salvation through Jesus Christ, we still are having to deal with this thick mess of sin. That's all around us that we contribute to. Even though Jesus has paid the price for our sin, we still struggle in it. Sin has tainted everything, and it's had its corrosive effect, and it causes confusion, and from time to time we buy into the lies. We go along with the disordering of God's order. Just reference those questions we worked through just briefly and just ask yourself, if you believed the scriptures that we cover today and you answered those questions according to scripture and you stood firm upon those convictions and then had conversations about those things in the workplace or at school or maybe in your community, how difficult would that be? How challenged would you be by those discussions. You see, the, the ruler of this present age, he, he loves to destroy God's order. 
But God, the author, the sovereign over all things, has established order in the midst of chaos. And church, he brings order to our chaos as well when we acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, Lord and Master. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are, you are gracious. Lord, I am so grateful that you have revealed to us how you brought about creation. We don't know exactly, perfectly, scientifically how every portion of what you did came about, but your word gives us what we need to stand firm upon. It is true. You speak truth. You give us so much that is helpful to our understanding. God, where we struggle to trust your word, humble us to, uh, to be looking through and, and trusting your word more and more, to ask questions, to converse with one another, to be sharpened by the counsel of your word. Lord, we submit to you, God. You've proven yourself as a, as a worthy sovereign. And we ask that you would help us to rule where you have placed us to rule in a way that's benevolent and, and good and right. That we would see more order in our families, more order in the church, more order in our community because of Christ. Lord, as we work through the book of Genesis, we ask that you would go before us and help us to study it carefully, to see your plan unfolding of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Pillar Bible Fellowship. Please email any comments or questions about the sermon to feedback at pillarhoodriver.org.